Father God, I do pray that um, as we listen to the word being preached, that it would not just go in one side and out the other, but that it would sink deep into our hearts. Help us to hide your word in our hearts so that we may not sin against you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, good morning. Um, hey, Toby, would you stand up for me? <laughs> now, Toby's actually in a lot of pain, so if you don't feel like you can stand up, don't worry about it. Nobody knows this, but well, a lot of people know this, actually. Toby hurt himself. He's on injured reserve for the rest of the season, but he hurt his uh, ankle really bad, or his, uh, we think it's his Achilles tendon, so you guys be praying for Toby. All right, kids, if you look at Toby, and you look at me, oh, there he is, all right, now, Okay, I'm going to stand over here beside Mr. Toby. All right. Both Mr. Toby and I played football. But one of us played American football. And the other one played real football. Um, <laughs> soccer. Okay, now, can you tell just by looking at the two of us which one played which sport? So, any kids out there want to venture and guess which one of us played real football and which one played the thing called American football? Okay, anybody? Mr. Toby played what? Which football? You got it. He played Amer- American football. All right, thank you, Mr. Toby. All right. Uh, it's pretty easy to tell from looking at me that I did not play, unless I was the kicker, <laughs> I did not play American football, okay? But Mr. Toby over here, he looks like a football player, all right? I, I saw in Sports Illustrated, this was several years ago, there was a Sports Illustrated um, layout that had a bunch of different athletes, and uh, they were all dressed in white, and just by, it was, it was examining their different physiques based upon what sport they played. It was very interesting. Because there was the American football player and he had no neck and just this big upper body. And then there was the soccer player who had a neck and the skinny arms and big old thick legs. And then there was a weightlifter and he had his own unique look. And they, as they went down, there was a basketball player, tall and skinny. And all these different players had their own unique look. And you could guess just by looking at them. You didn't have to look at the labels underneath what sport they played. Just by looking at them, you could tell what they did, what their um, occupation was. As I think about this passage of Scripture that, uh, that we're looking at, and we're taking our time now as we get to chapter 5, and we've been kind of going through this walk that Paul is talking about, this lifestyle, and he's mentioned our walk, that we are to walk in love that we are to um, walk um, in light or walk as children of light. And now he's talking about this walk of wisdom. And as he talks about the walk of wisdom, one of the things he mentions, the third thing he mentions, he says, first of all, to make the best use of our time, that we are to know what the Lord's will is. And thirdly, we are to be filled with the Spirit. And as he gets to this part about being filled with the Spirit, he takes his time there on that third point, and he gives us four marks of what it means to be a spirit-filled Christian. So I think about this text, I think, how do you know someone's a spirit-filled Christian? Well, how do they look? 
What do they look like? And this text here, Paul gives us four things, four marks of the Spirit-filled Christian. If, we, if we're going to go around and say that we are filled with the Holy Spirit, that we are people who are Spirit-filled, then these marks should be present in our life. Now, last week we began to talk about what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Okay, and we started to look at these four marks or these four outcomes of Spirit-filled living. You'll remember that I argued last week that the infilling of the Spirit okay, is not the same as baptism in the Spirit. And I tried to distinguish the, the difference between those two. This baptism in the Spirit is the initial work of the Holy Spirit okay, that happens once at conversion to all those who confess Jesus as Lord. Okay, baptism, as I mentioned, only happens once. But filling is something that happens over and over and over again in the Christian life as we submit to the Holy Spirit. It's something we should pursue. It's something that we should desire. It's something that we're commanded to do, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, it happens, and we discuss this, as we meditate upon the Word, we become saturated with the Word, and when we pray, and those are the means by which the Holy Spirit fills us. His Word and prayer. Now, for the sake of helping us understand what spirit-filled living is like, Paul contrasts it in this text with drunkenness. And we talked a little bit about that as well. The drunk person is under the influence of alcohol, loses self-control, loses all restraint, and is given over to sinful living. The spirit-filled person is under the influence of the Spirit. That's why I'm calling this message, Walking Under the Influence. Under the influence of the Spirit is self-controlled and sober-minded and submits himself to holy living. The spirit-filled person is occupied, guided, controlled by and is in submission to and surrendered to the Holy Spirit. Right? The Christian is to walk under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And as I mentioned, after Paul gives us this command, this imperative that we are to be filled with the Holy Spirit, he then gives us some participles, five participles to be exact, that break down into four marks of Spirit-filled living. So, as way of reminder, I'll bring up, or maybe I have to have the guys bring it up. Go to the, go to the next slide after this one. Here are our four marks. Spirit-filled living manifests itself through, or I think I put in your notes there, a person who walks under the influence of the Spirit uh, exhibits, one, Christ-exalting fellowship, Two, Christ-centered worship. Three, Christ-enabled thanksgiving. And four, Christ-revering submission. And last week we were only able to get through the first one. And this week we will only be able to get through two and three. And I really want to take our time on number four. Because it's very important. I don't think we understand what submission, mutual submission is in the church in this day and age. And it's very important. As I got to really thinking about what it means to be mutually submissive in the church, I thought that's going to take a whole message. So we're going to save that one for later. We're just going to do the middle two today. So, so as I've mentioned, these are, these are things that Paul mentions here in this text. As I said, there were five participles. So, so let's look at the text, verse 19. So the Spirit-filled person... If we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we should be doing, number one, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Addressing. So there's the first uh, participle. It speaks of Christ-exalting fellowship. 
The second half of verse 19 says, singing and making melody. Those two participles go together. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. That's worship. We'll talk about that some more here in a second. The third one, verse 20, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the fifth and final participle in this passage here, verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So I want us to think about these things that Paul mentions and, uh, and, and think about that in regards to being filled with the Holy Spirit. Now there's many places in the narratives, especially in Acts, where we read about people being filled with the Holy Spirit. But this is the only imperative, this is the only command in Scripture that we are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So under the inspiration of the Spirit... In the only place in Scripture where we are commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit, Paul does not say, and the marks of being filled with the Holy Spirit are speaking in tongues. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say the marks of being filled with the Holy Spirit is some sort of uh, ecstatic experience or anything like that. Instead, he gives us very, four very practical outworkings of being, very, being Spirit-filled. Four marks. Notice the structure also here, okay? If you look at number one and number four, number one and number four, those really focus on loving others and being spirit-filled in how we treat others. Christ-exalting fellowship within the body and mutual submission. And the middle two, verses two and three, focus more on our direction towards loving God. Being filled with the Spirit means we're going to worship Christ and that we are going to be thankful through Christ. Notice something else about these, uh, these four. They also get increasingly difficult. Christ-exalting fellowship, being with others and fellowshipping with others in song. Christ-centered worship, that's a little bit more difficult because we're trying to center our life solely on Christ. Christ-enabled thanksgiving, that's even more difficult when you take into account how Paul tells us to be thankful. And then finally, Christ's revering submission. These actually increase in difficulty as you go down the list. Yet, for the Spirit-filled person, these things should be happening. And the increased difficulty simply, simply drives us to more dependence upon Christ so that we can say, once these things begin to happen, it's not us, but Christ in us, through His Spirit that is making these things happen. Colossians 1.29, Paul says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works in me. So we toil to, to be spirit-filled and to see these things, but in the end, we rest in Christ. It is his Holy Spirit that does the work. 1 Corinthians 15.10, By the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. Philippians 2.13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So this brings us back to the gospel of grace. We have hope for sanctification because of the certainty of what has been done on our behalf at the cross of Christ. The Spirit's presence and the continual infilling of the Spirit is the demonstration, the guarantee, the seal that we do belong to Christ and that we are being conformed into his image for that reason and on that basis we seek to be spirit-filled. We aim for it. We pursue it 
We work for it. Now, let me remind us of a couple of things we said last week regarding Christ-exalting fellowship, and then we'll hit those other two points here this morning. I argued last week that Spirit-filled people commend Christ to one another. They address one another in song, specifically psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. The gathering of the believers is to be a joyful singing occasion where we sing of the excellencies of Christ to one another and thus commend Him to, to one another. That public commendation of Christ is a mechanism by which teaching occurs in the church. Remember last week I drew our attention to the parallel passage to this one in Colossians chapter 3. It says this, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, which, by the way, tells us how we're spirit-filled right there. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So this Christ-exalting commending of Christ to one another through fellowship, it is also a means of teaching. When we sing songs to one another, we are teaching one another about Christ. And that is why I'm glad you mentioned what you mentioned about the the old hymns as we sing these songs, because we are teaching one another when we sing. That's why we think about the lyrics. That's why we focus on the content and not just the beat or the melody, but on the content of what we're singing because we are teaching. The main goal of Christian music is not entertainment, it's teaching. Now, as I said last week, that doesn't mean we don't enjoy it. We don't enjoy good singing or anything like that. But the point is that our singing is not meant to entertain us. It's not meant to entertain men, but to proclaim Christ. Singing in the church is not meant to, procl- to entertain men, but to proclaim Christ to one another and to any believer, unbeliever who might be in our midst. And this has profound implications, really, on what songs we sing, on the manner in which we sing, on the importance of singing, on your and my decision whether or not I'm going to sing. Remember, we do not come here to get filled to be filled, but to give because we come here as spirit-filled people. We come here filled, therefore we come and commend Christ to one another, edifying one another in song. And that's Christ-exalting fellowship, and we talked a lot about that last week. Remember, the Spirit's primary task, the Holy Spirit's primary task is to exalt the Son. Therefore, if we are spirit-filled, we will be commending the Son to one another. Addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And then the second half of that verse says, Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Which brings me to our second point, which is Christ-centered worship. So the first point, the first half of verse 19 is singing that is directed towards one another. Okay, the songs are about Christ, but we are commending Christ to one another. And the second half of this verse focuses on the vertical direction that we are singing directly to God, worshiping Him in song. And I mentioned last week, this is exhibited in the Psalms. Go open up the Psalms and you'll see some of the Psalms that are spoken directly to God. And other Psalms are singing about God. That's what we're talking about here. It's all focused on one, on Jesus Christ alone. That's where our focus is. But some of our songs are singing about Jesus to one another. Let me tell you about Jesus. How great is our God. But other songs are singing directly to Jesus, directly to God. 
Now, we think about worship. You've probably heard this before, but the word worship literally means worship. Okay, comes from the Old English. Okay, and it, it means ascribing worth or acknowledgement of worth of a particular item. In this case, God. We are worshiping God. We are acknowledging His worth and proclaiming His worth. Now, here's the thing. Every single person in the world worships, period. That's because everyone was made to worship. And therefore, everybody ascribes worth to something. Okay, we are meant, we are designed to ascribe worth to God, but everybody ascribes worth to something. We all center our lives on something or someone that we believe will provide the meaning and the security and the joy that we were created to long for. Every single one of us, every single person in the world finds something to worship because we have a longing. We have a longing to find meaning and security and joy and to ascribe worth to whatever it is that gives us that meaning and security and joy. Augustine said this, God, you have made us, he's praying here to the Lord, God, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in you. Everybody worships. We all allocate worth to someone or something. A job, perhaps a dream, an ambition, a church, our family, money, diversions, sex, you name it. It can be a good thing or it can be a bad thing. The question is, how do we know what it is that we worship? Well, we can ask ourselves, what is it that occupies our thinking? What is it that occupies our thought life? What is it that occupies our desires more than anything else? And if whatever it is that occupies the center of our life isn't God, then we will be restless. If that center, that say you have a, a wheel, I've got a bike tire in my office I should have brought out here, and you've got the spokes and then you have the, the centerpiece, the hub there. If that hub, if that center isn't God, you're going to be restless. If God is just a spoke in your life, but there's something else that occupies your thoughts, your desires, then that is what you worship, and God is just a peripheral thing. We are meant to be people who are centered upon God. That means our whole being will be focused on Him. Look at that phrase here when, when Paul says that they worship with, that we are to sing with your heart. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Your heart in the Hebrew way of thinking was more than just your emotions. It was your whole being. It included your intellect. It included your emotions. It included your will. A person who worships from the heart worships fully. That means God has their whole being. He engages God with his thoughts. He engages God with his affections. And he engages God with the will. One of the ways that, we, that um, the human heart expresses itself most fully is through song, right? That's one of the ways that we, as humans, that we've been designed to express ourselves is through song. That's why we enjoy songs. That's why you turn on the radio. That's why when you hear a song that from 20 years ago it brings up some sort of memory or something because something about singing has the ability to bring out what's in our heart. And so one of the ways we express what's at the center of our heart is through song. So he says here to sing and, and to make melody. This, this phrase here, to make melody, 
is actually oftentimes used to refer to musical instruments. It literally means to strum. So this text here, not to mention many of the Psalms, especially Psalm 150, gives us plenty of grounds to use instruments in worship and to use lots of instruments in worship and to enjoy the use of instruments in worship. We are to sing and we are to make melody. Music is very important to God. Do you realize that we are commanded to sing to God? The Scriptures command us to sing to God. You cannot read through the book of Psalms and not find plenty of commands to sing to the Lord. You can't escape from it. And what is it called when we fail to follow a command that the Lord gives us? Children, what is that called? It's a little three-letter word. begins with an S, ends with an N. Yes, sin! Did he say sin? Good. Sin, yes. Good job, Rowan. That's right. We are commanded to make music to the Lord, and when we don't do it, we are sinning. It's that simple. When we don't sing to the Lord, we are sinning. Not to sing to the Lord is not to ascribe ultimate worth to Him in song. That is a sin. Apart from Christ. No one can do this uh, as they should, obviously. But if one is in Christ and has the Holy Spirit, then he should be a singing person. He should be someone whose life is so centered upon Christ that song comes out. We are to be singing and making melody to the Lord. Every time you see the word, most of the times you see the word Lord, kurios in the New Testament is referring to Jesus referring to our Lord Jesus Christ. So this singing and making melody, it's Christ-centered worship. Paul is telling us that the natural gravitation, the natural focus of our worship is upon the visible member of the Godhead, God incarnate, Jesus Christ, the Son. Again, the Spirit's role, if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit's role, according to John 16, 4, is to glorify the Son. Thus, the Spirit-filled person will exalt the Son, and he does so in song. To not sing is a sign of not being filled with the Holy Spirit. To not sing is a sign that you're not filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, one last observation about this second mark before we go to the third one here. Now, it's, you really can't pick this up in the English, or it's a little bit more subtle in the English. So I want to try to explain a couple of things here. The word, the, those participles, singing and making melody, those two participles there, in the Greek they are in the plural form. So, so what he's saying is that each one of us should be singing. Each one of us should be making melody. It's in the plural form. But then when he gets to the last part of the verse there, where it says, with your heart, that word, your heart, is singular. Now it seems that the logical way to write this sentence, if he's saying singing and making melody in your hearts, plural, I mean singing and making melody, plural, that he should say in your hearts. Each one of you singing and making melody in your hearts. But he doesn't. Instead, he shifts from the plural to the singular, implying that though we are many in the body, we come together 
and we lift up one voice with one heart to the one Lord in harmony and unity. We are not just a collection of individual people, individual parts, independently worshiping God when we gather like this. We are one body. And each one of us are commanded, sing, make melody, and together in our one heart we worship the Lord. So I think it's a beautiful picture here of Paul reminding us that corporate worship is a beautiful thing when we come together as many parts of one body singing corporately together in unity to our risen Lord. And as I mentioned last week, therefore, if you come to this gathering and you don't sing, you refuse to sing, or if you come to this gathering and, um, and your heart has no desire to sing to the Lord, if you are part of this body, your decision doesn't just affect you, it affects the whole body. If you come to church without being spirit-filled, not ready to commend Christ to others, your pity party isn't just affecting you. Because the Bible makes it very clear, we are one heart, and therefore you affect every single other person in the body. Therefore, we have a responsibility to come to this place ready to commend Christ to one another and ready to point our worship to Jesus and sing to Him. You have a responsibility as a believer to do that. And so do I. It's part of what corporate worship is all about. Remember, as Paul gets to the outcome here, the fruit, the application of the gospel that he mentioned in in verses one um, chapters one through three, he as he gets back to the applic- as he starts talking about application here, he wants to remind us this isn't just about individual application; it's about the church. We grow in holiness; we become more like Christ together. Your sanctification isn't your own little project on the side; it is something that happens in community, in unity with the body. You've probably heard the illustration before, but out there on the um, west coast, the big redwood trees that are out there, the root systems go down, but then they shoot out in, in, in opposite, in, in, in outward directions, and they intermingle with the roots of the other redwood trees. And these gigantic trees that are so tall, their roots don't go down but about four or five feet. And you wonder, how on earth could such a gigantic, tall tree stay without getting knocked over by the wind and the elements? The reason it doesn't get knocked over is because these giant roots that it produces intermingle with the other roots of the other trees that are around it. And each redwood tree is strong because of all the redwood trees that are surrounding it. That's a beautiful picture of what fellowship is in the church. We come here and we commend Christ to one another. And in doing so, we are strengthening, we are edifying the other believers in the church. And if we come and just focus on us, I'm just going to get what I need from church today. Just fill me, Lord. Fix my week, Lord. Then we're not coming to the church with the right reasons. We are to come focused on Christ, understanding that our commending of Him affects other brothers and sisters in the church. We corporately center our lives on Christ, and only when our lives are radically God-centered can we see the next mark of walking under the influence of the Spirit, which is number three, Christ-enabled thanksgiving. Only when our lives are properly centered upon Christ 
can we even begin to have this Christ-enabled thanksgiving that we're going to talk about right now. Verse 20, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, parents in here, you can identify with me. We're always telling our kids to be thankful, aren't we? Come on, so-and-so, thank, thank your sister for doing that. Or, you know, they'll, we'll be in some place publicly and what do you say? Say thank you. Come on. And I think sometimes because of that, and because of that focus that, we, that our kids get about regarding Thanksgiving, it becomes a habit. Okay, it's a habit um, just to say thanks after something. Okay, I, someone gave me something, I say thanks. Uh, or it's a habit that we do before we eat our food. Okay, let's say thanks. And we kind of boil Thanksgiving down to just good manners. But Thanksgiving is much more than good manners. Paul is talking about much more here than just being a good-mannered person. Just as we are commanded to sing in the Scriptures, so too Christians are commanded to be thankful. No less than 46 times Paul talks about Thanksgiving in his epistles. 46 times Paul talks about being a thankful person in his epistles. Therefore, I would gather that it's pretty important. The word here for thanksgiving, eucharisteo, means to praise with thanks. It's part of our worship. We cannot be Christ-commending, Christ-worshiping people without thanksgiving. It's the expectation okay, that Paul has for all true believers. If you are a true believer, you will be a thankful person. That's Paul's expectation. If you are a Christian then thanksgiving will flow out of you. 1 Corinthians, I mean, 1 Thessalonians 5.18. He says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now here we have a great example of what we talked about three weeks ago. When we talked about following God's will. Remember, I tried to say following God's will is not some, some, like you're trying to solve some sort of mystical puzzle in the sky to figure out what God wants you to do. Following God's will in the New Testament primarily talks about just obeying what he tells you to do. And here's a great example. Give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt and look you in the eye and say, it is God's will that you be a thankful person. So if you come up and say, you know, is it, I just don't know if God wants me to, to be thankful. It's obvious he does. It is God's will that you be a thankful person. If you, and I can also say this, if you are not a grateful, thankful person, you are outside of God's will. Because we always like to talk about being in the center of God's will, being outside of God's will. Here's how you figure it out. Am I in God's will or am I not? In this text, it says, a great, you are a great, if you're a grateful person, thankful person, then you are following God's will. If you're not, you're not. Therefore, I can confidently say, if you are not a grateful person being, showing thanksgiving to God and thankful for, towards people, then I, I can guarantee you, you are outside of God's will. Because it's clear here what God's will is. Gratitude is a central part of what it means to be saved. A regenerate person, a new creation in Christ, 
is a thankful person. And I can say this, that it's an essential part of what it means to be saved based upon Romans 1. If you go to Romans 1, starting in verse 18, you see this great, this, this phenomenal passage that describes our depravity. Okay, and, and in here it talks about God's wrath and, and how, how men could have known, should know God because what can be known about him is plain to them. And then you get to verse 21, and it says this. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darking, darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So, lack of gratitude is part of our depravity. Lack of gratitude is part of being a depraved person. Lack of gratitude is part of what it means to be an outright rebellion against God. Children of light whose hearts are no longer darkened, people who walk in wisdom, who have been enlightened by God's Spirit, people who worship God rightly, worship to the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit, those for whom these things can be rightly said about proper worship are grateful people. And in this verse here, Paul gives us the frequency of thanksgiving, the occasion of thanksgiving, and the direction of our thanksgiving. The frequency of our thanksgiving, it says always. Okay, the occasion of our thanksgiving for everything. And the direction of our thanksgiving to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now Paul has already told us in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 4 that the opposite of crude talk is to be a person who has thanksgiving, gratitude in their speech. Now, so let's talk a little bit more about thanksgiving. When he says always here, certainly Paul doesn't mean that every single word that comes out of your mouth has to be thank you. Or every single sentence has to start with the word thank you. But what Paul wants us to see here is that thanksgiving is the regular, recurrent part of our life. Quite simply, our life should be saturated with thankfulness. People who are under the influence of the Spirit should be known as thankful people who exhibit a consistent pattern of gratitude. If we have Mark number 2 okay, and are Christ-centered worshipers, then thanksgiving simply flows out of that. But I'm afraid that we too often imitate our God-ignoring world. Our depraved world is radically God-ignoring. I watched a, a nature video recently, and it's just these beautiful scenes of nature, and you're, you're, just, you're just overwhelmed as you see these magnificent scenes. And you can't help but just be thankful. Wow, Lord, this is amazing what you can do. It's amazing what your world teaches us about you. And you watch, listen to the commentator on the video, and he never mentions God. He mentions the awe and the splendor, and he boils it, boils it down to some accident of nature. And he ignores the maker. He ignores God. And as Romans 1 said, he fails to thank God. He fails to give gratitude to the creator. And I'm afraid that even in the church, we too often imitate the world. The God-ignoring world we live in. 
Spirit-filled people, if we're spirit-filled people, it forces us out of our man-centered, God-ignoring, fleshly living and into God-acknowledging, God-magnifying living that sees God's goodness everywhere and thanks Him all the time. You're thanking God for everything. You're brushing your teeth and you think, wow, these are amazing. These things that stick out of our head that help us crush food and cut food. It's absolutely amazing that God created these things. The human eye is a million times more complex than the most complex camera that any of us have. And yet we sit here and we do our, I don't do my eyelashes, we do your eyelashes and brush your teeth because we are trained to be God-ignoring. It's part of our life. It's part of our depravity. We don't thank God for things. Instead, being a spirit-filled person should be bringing to mind all sorts of things to be thankful to God for. We're such a God-ignoring people. And circumstances drive us to ignore God. Instead of sitting in here this morning and thanking God that we have, I don't know, 40, 50 souls in here who by the grace of God, Lord willing, are going to be fed by the Word and are going to commend Christ to one another. I begin to ignore that instead of thanking God for that and begin to moan in my heart that we don't have more people here. Because I'm a God-ignorer, and we all are in so many different ways. We have to let the Spirit take over, rule us, and walk under the influence of the Spirit where we say, thank you, Lord. This doesn't make sense to me. I'm not happy with it, but I'm going to thank you anyway. I'm going to be a person who's always thanking the Lord. But now we get to the really hard part. We get to the frequency of thanksgiving. We've mentioned the frequency. Now we get to the occasion of thanksgiving. It says, for everything. Really, Paul? You want us to be thankful for everything? I kind of like the Thessalonians version better where it says be thankful in all circumstances. But here you're saying be thankful for everything. Really, Paul? Is that what Paul's trying to say here with this? Let me give you some insight here. The Greek word for for everything means for everything. In other words... The exact Paul's words that Paul wanted to be on this page that were inspired by the Spirit of God are here. That we are to be thankful for everything. There's no getting around this. Paul said this. I think we would like to have had Paul say something like, thank God for good things. Or thank God for pleasant things. Thank God for happy things. Or even thank God for most things. But everything? Friends, you and I can only do this. Thanking God for everything. If we have been freed up by radically God-centered worship. Where we believe and acknowledge that indeed God is the center of the universe. The ultimate reality. And that His Son is the focus of all of history. And thus we believe from the heart. Romans 11.36 which says this. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. 
That's radically God-centered worship to be able to say and believe those words in Romans eleven thirty six. And only when we truly understand and comprehend and believe and submit to that truth can we ever in a million years truly, truly believe what Romans 8, 28 says, which says, For those who love God, all things, everything, works together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. If you have not embraced, if we have not embraced that truth, we cannot be thankful for everything. If we don't truly believe Romans 8.28, you cannot do what Paul's telling us to do here. But if we have, if we worship Jesus, the true center of the universe, for whom, through whom, and to whom are all things, and thus trust that in him he works all things together for good, of the good of those who are called, his called ones, then yes, we must not only, we not, not only must believe that, we will want to walk with him. We will want to thank him for everything. Because of his finished work at Calvary, we know that all things work together for our good and for his glory. Everything that is in our life, everything in our lives, good, Helpful and pleasing things and everything in our life that is bad, difficult, and trying, we are to thank God for. How do we do that? How do we do that? Some of the greatest saints in history understood this text, believed this text, and therefore they could say things like this. Charles Spurgeon. He said, health is a gift from God, but... Sickness is a gift greater still. And this is a man who was sick a lot. Matter of fact, his illnesses probably led to him dying earlier than he should have. He had horrible pain with gout and different types of illnesses. Or David Brainerd, who at 29 years of age was lying on his deathbed, spitting up blood because he was dying of TB. He was in and out of consciousness. In one of his moments of consciousness, he said this. Oh, how all of us could die in this way. Oh, for holiness. Oh, for more of God in my soul. Oh, this pleasing pain. It makes my soul press after God. In our comfortable America, these things sound like absolute insanity. And therefore, we get to a passage that says, thank God for everything. We say, no, that can't mean that. Surely Paul meant something else. Because we live in a culture where comfort has become our right. The greatest saints in history understood that pain was even worthy of thanking God for because From him, through him, to him are all things. And if I am in him, then therefore all things work together for my good, including this pain. All of it. God-given afflictions serve as medicine to purge our souls of this world's idols and vanities. Johnny Erickson Tada, if you know who she is, 
Most of you all know who she is. At 17 years of age, uh, in a diving accident, I believe. I'm not sure if I'm remembering it correctly, but she basically uh, became paralyzed from the neck down. So she's a quadriplegic. She's now in her 60s, I believe. That happened when she was 17. And this is what she said recently. I look back at that particular day, and I see it as a gift from God because I know that one day I will enjoy a new body and a new world, and I will have new legs, and I will be dancing. But what God has done in the meantime is that he has prepared me for that day by helping me to see him in ways I could have never seen him before had I not been paralyzed from the neck down. What does it mean to thank God for everything? It means exactly what these people are doing. That's what it means. That you actually believe Romans 8, 28. You sever the root of unbelief of Romans by Romans 8, 28. Do you really believe that? That God has worked all your pain, all your struggle, all your stress into his perfect plan for your good and for his glory. If we believe that, then it frees us up to believe what Paul is saying here about being thankful for everything. Oh, that we could just get a smidgen of the faith that these people had that I've just mentioned. How ungrateful we are. How ungrateful we are. If we could just have the faith of unnamed saints across this globe who at this very hour are being led to the slaughter with thankful hearts as they're tortured for the sake of Christ. All they have to do is say, I deny him. And they would, the pain would be over. And in our culture where comfort is our right, I don't think we'd be able to stand what they're going through. What a purging America needs. And we get upset because of our stress and our difficulty and our kids are whiny, whatever it is. Oh, if we could just have the faith and the thankful hearts of these people who are dying today. There will be people going into paradise today who are saying, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. These are the men and women of whom the world is not worthy that we read of in Hebrews 11. Men and women whose faith in the Son, from whom, through whom, to whom, are all things They have faith that that son is working all things together for their good. Therefore, they thank him for all things. 2 Corinthians 4, 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God, not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak. 
knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Listen to this, verse 15 of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Oh, that grace may abound, that thanksgiving may abound, so that Christ's glory may abound. How can we be thankful people? God may not deliver us from our trials and circumstances. He may not heal us from our pain and suffering. He may not protect us from calamity and tragedy. But he is for us. And therefore, who can be against us? And he has prepared a place for us in glory. Romans 8, 32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us what? All things. All things. For from him, through him, to him are all things. And he works all things together for the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. And how much more will he not give us, graciously give us all things? Not in this world. But in the age to come, therefore, I will thank him for all things. Because the pain I'm going through right now and that you're going through right now is for your good. And we can thank him for it. Finally, our thanks is directed at God through the Son. It says here, to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, Do you see the Trinity again here? I just love how the Trinity is all over Ephesians. So, Spirit-filled people generate thanks to the Father through the name of the Son. Jesus is the equipper and the enabler of proper gratitude to the Father. We trust in everything that that the Son is for us, knowing that He has secured for us all things. I can't go any farther. Uh, I would like to get the submission in, but you can see why I couldn't get it in today. We will go there next week. The final mark of walking under the influence of the Spirit is a very important one. And I don't want to not do it justice by trying to squeeze it in here today. It's actually a very important verse in this whole text because it's a hinge verse. It hinges this text here about walking in the Spirit, and then we're going to talk about the family. Marriage and children. This verse is the hinge. So we've got to get it right. So I want to take time on it next week. We need to understand what this means. If we fail to understand mutual submission within the body, we will not enter into the vital text on marriage and family properly. And mutual submission within the church is, I believe, becoming a lost art in today's world. So we're to be spirit-filled Christians walking under the influence of the Spirit. So just as it's as obvious that Toby played American football and that I didn't, it should be so obvious to people when they look at us 
that person is a spirit-filled person. I heard that person thanking God. And, and their father just passed away. How can that be? I heard that person singing songs to God. But I know what their life's like. I know that they've got tons of unfilled, unpaid bills and stuff. How can that be? Because when the world looks at us, they should see the Spirit ruling and reigning in lives that have submitted ourselves to Him so that He might have all the influence. Let's pray. Let's close. Let's pray to the Lord Jesus now and ask Him to send His Spirit in a fresh way in each one of our hearts that we can be people who live the way Paul has called us to live. Lord Jesus, we thank You for the time that we've had this morning just to uh, study Your Word a little bit. And Lord, as I, um, as I prayed before the service and I pray now again, uh, Lord, I pray that You would strike any error any, any mistakes, uh, any foolishness that I inserted into the sermon, any man-centeredness, any, any of me. Strike that from our hearts and from our minds, and instead let your pure word flow. Let it go out and have its say, have its will, and not come back void, but instead to produce fruit, the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of holiness that comes when your spirit has its way in our hearts. Lord Jesus, send your Spirit fresh in a new way into our lives. We know, we have a guarantee, we have a seal. We know we belong to you if we truly have confessed Jesus. And we feel the presence of the Spirit in our hearts. But God, we need a filling. We need an infilling. This church needs a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. God, you've brought our church through a roller coaster for about the past year and let me be the first to confess that I have not thanked you for everything well I've thanked you in the midst of everything but not for everything forgive me Jesus for my foolishness my narrow sightedness and my failure to truly believe Romans 8 28 do a work in my heart because I can't do these spirit-filled things. Oh, it's only as I look to the cross, as I look at what you've accomplished, Jesus, do I have any hope because ultimately it's not me, but it's you in me doing these things and in each one of us. Let us not leave here with the foolish idea that we can somehow pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and live a more spirit-filled life. But instead, let us go home and fall on our face and say, Jesus, I do not even come close to having the capacity to thank you for everything. There's no way. I can't do it. To which I believe you will say to us, of course you can't. I already have. And so we come to the cross right now as we sing. Have your way in our hearts, Lord. Do what you want with us. Restore in our hearts joy. Restore in our hearts peace. There are plenty in this room that need restoration right now. 
Life's circumstances have robbed us of joy. Our own hard-heartedness has robbed us of your joy. And we need spirit-led restoration across this room, including myself, Lord. And so we pray now as we sing this song, sing it to you. May it also be an edifying thing for the whole body, an edifying experience of true, genuine worship. Praise be to your holy name, Lord Jesus Christ. You are our King. You reign supreme. And it's in your name that we close our prayer. Amen.